Amen. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that indeed your love is unfailing, unwavering, and you're such a gracious God, so faithful. Lord, we ask as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would speak. Lord, minister to every heart that is here. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It's great to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 5. Continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. Um, By way of personal endorsement, let me encourage you, if you're thinking about going to the School of Ministry, uh, be encouraged to do that. Tim Brown and Brian Hemminger, the guys who are going to be teaching, are both guys who that I receive counsel from. Tim Brown's a guy that in the Bay Area is kind of known as the, you know, the theologian. He's the guy we call with Bible questions. And so he's going to be coming down from Calvary Fremont to teach that class in Romans. Um, if I have an opportunity, I'm going to sit in on some of those classes. I just think you'll be blessed. And Romans is a great book and a book that uh, is just so filled with, with doctrine, biblical truth. And so I encourage you. And then the other class on biblical doctrines are, you know, the basics of, of the Christian faith. Again, Brian Hemminger, another, if you were here for the men's breakfast a few months back, uh, just a really gifted guy. And I just really encourage you. We're really blessed to have it right here in our church. And even if you're not looking to, you know, get a degree, you know, take a class or two. Be, be you know, built up in the most holy faith. So I just can't uh, recommend it enough. All right. Revelation chapter 5. Quick review, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, that's what the book of Revelation is about, the apocalypsis, it reveals the person of Christ, chapter 1, we see Christ and his person revealed to who Christ is in heaven now, chapters 2 and 3, we see the letters to the seven churches, again, all the CDs are free, you can also go to the website and get any of these past messages, we get to chapter 4, and we leave the church age behind, Remember the outline for Revelation is Revelation 119, things which were, things which are, and things which are to come. Things which were, chapter 1, the things which are, the church age that we're living in right now, and the things which are to come, chapters 4 onward. Now we saw at the beginning of chapter 4, John was summoned to come up into heaven. Last week we got a glimpse into heaven, last two weeks we got a glimpse into heaven. And so we're going to continue this morning. We're going to spend chapter 5, which is a continuation of chapter 4, of us being in heaven with John, seeing what John sees. And we're going to see the, the Lord yet again, a different picture of him, but what he is doing in heaven. Now, with all that being said, I think it's so important for us to remember that the church is no longer going to be mentioned from chapter 4 onward. And so these are all events that are taking place when the church is in heaven. And praise God for that, amen. But we need to know about this truth because we have those who are here that we love, that we want to be able to minister to, but also we need to recognize this helps continue to reveal the character of our Savior. So I titled the message this morning, Worthy is the Lamb. And the points are, first of all, who is worthy to open the scroll of redemption? Who is worthy? Then we're going to see of, of man and of angels and of those below the earth that none is worthy. But then in chapter 5 through 7, we'll see that one is worthy. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Then we're going to see our response to the one who is worthy. The response first of those believers and then the response of all creation. So, worthy is the Lamb. And praise God for that. Amen. So verse 1, it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, 
sealed with seven seals. So now here we are, we're back up again in heaven with John. John has been talking all this time about the throne of God. Remember that in chapter four, the focal point of heaven is the throne of God. As he enters into heaven, he doesn't mention the golden streets or the pearly gates or anything else. He talks about the throne, what's on the throne, what's before the throne, what's above the throne, who's circling around the throne. Remember that on the throne sits God the Father. And he doesn't see a figure he sees, you know, light emanating from the throne. He sees a rainbow around the throne, speaking of God's faithfulness to his promises. We see the 24 elders seated on lesser thrones, wearing white robes and golden crowns. We, heard Lund- we saw that lightning and thunderings and voices proceeded from the throne, like on Mount Sinai, the voice of God thundering in heaven. The seven lamps of fire before the throne, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The sea of glass before the throne. Again, the Old Testament tabernacle is a model of heaven. The bronze laver. Again, this water basin that is before the throne of God. We saw the four living creatures in the midst of the throne. One with the face of a lion. One with the face of a calf or an ox. One with the face of a man. One with the face of an eagle. As we talked about last week, as they marched through the wilderness, camped in the, in the shape of a cross, the children of Israel, that each one of those directions had a banner that led the way. And they were a banner of a lion of the tribe of Judah, the calf, the man, and the eagle. So when God looked down on the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness, he saw the very same thing that we now see in heaven. It was a picture of heaven as they were surrounding the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. So the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of the throne. And there we saw worship and glory and honor and thanks being poured out upon the one who sits on the throne. What did they praise God for? For his holiness, for the fact that he's almighty and he's eternal. So then at the end of that, we see them casting their crowns before him. They worship him. He gives them crowns and they give the crowns right back. Because guys, any good works we do on this earth are only because of the Lord. And what he does in us and through us, so to him be all the glory. And so this is what's happening in heaven. This is the scene. Praising God as the one who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power as the creator of all things. And praise God that one day we're going to be around his throne worshiping him forevermore. So chapter 5 begins. That's the scene that's going on in heaven. The angels are there. The 24 elders are there. They're casting their crowns. They're worshiping God. It's with a loud voice, as we're going to see again in this morning's chapter. As I said, I believe heaven is going to be a loud place. But we're going to have young ears to take it. Amen? It won't be too loud for us, but we're going to love it. You know, think about how loud we get at a sporting event. Right? We get all excited at a sporting event and we cheer, you know, for people running, you know, a bunch of guys running around in uniforms, knocking each other down and we go crazy, right? Imagine what we like to cheer for almighty God in heaven one day. I don't think it's going to be subdued. I don't think we're going to be like, oh, here comes God. Oh, praise God. Now we're not going to do that. I think we're going to be excited. Now the scene in heaven begins to shift. We're still looking at the throne, but instead of looking, again, just at the throne, he's going to look at, the, at Almighty God, and God is holding something in his hand. And as we saw there in verse 1, he sits on the throne, and he has a scroll in his hand that is sealed with seven seals. Now what is a scroll? I know it's real basic, but it's an ancient parchment used for writing letters or books, and this is a unique scroll, Several reasons. One, God's holding it. So God's holding it. You know it's important. Amen. Secondly, it's written on both sides. 
And this is very unusual because usually when you read a scroll, you would roll it out, read a bit, roll it out, read a bit. Pretty hard to turn that thing over. But you know, very rarely did they write on both sides. But this just tells me that there was a lot of writing, almost more than the scroll could contain. And once the writing on the scroll was completed and was full, they would roll it together and then they would seal it with a wax seal. In this case, it has seven seals upon it. And a lot of times it had the mark of the one who had sealed it, meaning that was the only one who could open it. Or they would seal it delivered to a certain person and only they could open it. So in this case, there's this scroll in heaven and it's being held in the hand of Almighty God. And it has seven seals upon it. So what exactly is on this scroll? Here's the ultimate truth. We don't know for sure. There are many people who believe different things about this scroll. And I'm going to share with you what I believe. And I believe that it's backed up by scripture. So what's on this scroll? It appears to me that what God is holding is the title deed to the planet Earth. And he holds the title deed to the planet Earth in his hands. And since nearly two-thirds of the book of Revelation is a direct correlation with Old Testament text, it's a good place for us to look for deeper understanding. So don't turn there, but in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is under siege of Babylon. And they're about to be overthrown and overtaken. It's going to be taken. And God told Jeremiah in the middle of this whole siege that his son Hananiel, or his cousin, excuse me, Hananiel would come to him and offer to sell to him a field in Anathoth. Because Jeremiah was the near kinsman. You ever heard that term? The kinsman redeemer. We'll talk more about that. So he comes and he's going to offer him. Now, on the face, this looks like a horrible deal. Can you imagine if our country, imagine we were being invaded and somebody, you know, that your, your, your neighborhood's being wiped out. People are running in the streets. The, the, the neighborhood's being taken over by a foreign country and someone comes up and offers to sell you their house. <laughs> the house they no longer have. The house that's been overtaken, right? Well, that's what's happening. He comes to Jeremiah and says, hey, you're the kinsman. Hey, bro, how about you buy my land? The land that the Babylonians have just taken from me and I no longer possess. This sounds like a horrible deal. But you know what? God has a plan. And God told Jeremiah to buy the land from his cousin. Why? As a witness to the fact that they would one day be back. That they would not always be in Babylonian captivity. That one day that land would revert back to the children of Israel and that his descendants would then be able to reclaim that land because he had purchased it. It may not make sense to you why I'm talking about this, but it'll make sense in a minute. So when he, he tells Jeremiah, you know what? I've prophesied that one day you will return to the land. Jeremiah, I've prophesied through you. And now I want you to put your money where your mouth is in a sense. I want you to stand up for what you have taught and act like you believe it. And so when the time comes, he's going to offer you the land, give him the 17 shekels that he wants, and take the sealed scroll, that's what the word is, Take the sealed scroll, the title deed of the land, and put it in an earthen vessel and leave it there for when one of your relatives comes back into the land and the land and its ownership papers will be waiting for you. So the deed was signed by both sides. It was rolled up in a scroll and it was sealed. The title to the land that in the land of promise that would then revert back to the children of Israel once they left captivity. Now, does this sound like anything to you? To me, this is very clearly a picture 
that this land used to belong to us, the world did, until Adam and Eve sinned. And then dominion went to the enemy. And the Bible will talk about that. I'm getting ahead of myself. But dominion went to the enemy. But praise God that he is going to buy it back for us. Not because we deserve it, but because he's God and he's great. Amen? And he's gracious. Now we'll talk more about this in detail as we move on. But Jeremiah owns the property at this point. He's bought the land from his cousin. He signed the deed. He sealed it. He placed it in an earthen vessel. But it's not going to be until the end of the rule of Babylon, the end of the Gentile rule, that he'll be able to take possession of it. So he owns it, but he doesn't possess it. He had purchased it, but a period of time would pass before he would take possession of it. And during that time, again, there was never any doubt that one day he would possess it. When God, creator of, of heaven and earth, created it, he gave dominion to Adam and Eve. As I said, Genesis 1.28 says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gave dominion to Adam and Eve over the whole earth, but when Adam and Eve sinned, they gave dominion to Satan. They forfeited their dominion over to the enemy. A dominion God never intended for Satan to have, but of course he knew that he would because he's all-knowing God. Amen? Now, there's proof of this. Some would say, well, Satan doesn't have dominion of this world. Really? What planet are you living on, right? But there's proof in the word of God. In Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, when Satan tempted him, he said, the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now Jesus rebuked him for tempting him, but he never corrected the fact that Satan did have dominion over the world. That dominion had been delivered to him by sin, and Satan the Bible tells us in many places, is the God of this world. Now, does that mean God's not in control? Of course not. God is in control. God is, and Satan is a defeated foe. He's not won the battle, amen? But at this time, right now, God has allowed him, because of the sin of mankind, to have dominion over the earth. But when Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, he not only redeemed us, but he redeemed the world. Matthew 13 says, And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The field is the world, and the treasure is his bride, you and us. He found us, he redeemed us, he restores us out of a sinful and a lost world. He purchased the world and the church within it. So the world sold into slavery by Adam and Eve, slavery to sin and death, Hebrews chapter 2, the world is still under dominion of Satan. It says in Hebrews 2, for in that he will put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. That's Jesus. Not all things are under him because the world is in rebellion. And the world is separated from God. Now we can be born again and walking with him in the midst of it. But this helps us understand what's going on in the world today a little bit, doesn't it? When we look around... Now, there are those who believe that we're in the millennial kingdom right now. I'm trying to figure out how in the world you get to that. But here's the reality. Satan is not chained up yet, is he? He roars like a roaring lion. He roams about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. 
But praise God, there's a day coming when all that's going to be put to an end. And so, this is the Pastor Dave's opinion. A lot of theologians agree with me. A lot of commentators agree with me. This is the, you know, the title deed to the earth that is being held in the hand of Almighty God, the right hand of God, as he sits upon the throne. It says in verse 2, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? The strong angel. We don't know who this angel is. Some have suggested maybe it was Gabriel. We don't know for sure. But the angel issues a challenge to all of creation. Who can open the scroll? Who's worthy to open the scroll? Now remember, John is watching this. And the scroll is in the hand of Almighty God. What would make one worthy? Who meets the qualifications to open the scroll or open the book? Well, we know there's two qualifications. One, they needed to be a near kinsman, a kinsman redeemer. One that was related to the one who lost the land, and that would be Adam. So they would have to have, be someone who was, was a part of humanity. An angel couldn't do it. Needed to be somebody who was related to Adam. And he must have the ability to purchase the property, the purchasing power to buy us out of our sin. So he must be one who's taken on humanity, and he must be one who has the ability to take all of our sin upon himself to redeem sinful man back to holy God. And there's only one person who can do that, and his name is? There it is. So worthy is the Lamb. Remember when Jesus' public ministry began. John the Baptist saw him coming to be baptized. 30 years of preparation for three years of ministry. We do the opposite today, right? Three years of preparation for 30 years of ministry sometimes, right? But here's the son of the living God spending 30 years in preparation. And as his public ministry begins, he walks down and John the Baptist sees him and says, Behold the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And worthy is the Lamb. He is the one. He is our Redeemer. So who is worthy? Well, in verses 3 and 4, we're going to see that from those who are there, from the creation, none are found worthy. Look at verse 3. And no one in heaven, or in the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. The angel invites anyone, in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. In heaven, any angel. On the earth, any human being. Under the earth, any in the demonic realm, is there any created being who can open the scroll? Is there anyone who can come and take it? Is there anyone who's a near kinsman of Adam who can take the sin of all mankind upon himself and redeem a fallen world back to a holy God? Is there anyone who can do that? Now, what we don't know is after he made this pronouncement is how long he waited. How long was John watching and waiting to see Can somebody come and take the title deed to earth away from the enemy? Is there anyone who can do that? We don't know again how long he waited, but no one was able to step forward to take the scroll out of the Father's hand, to redeem sinful man and and, and sinful earth, to put dominion back into the hand of the Lord. No created being is able, no angel, no human being, 
no demon. Now, how does John respond? He's watching this. Remember, he's in heaven. He's one who's had a relationship with the Lord, and he's watching this. He's been one who has, you know, written books in the Bible, right? He wrote the Gospel of John, First and Second and Third John. He's now been on the island of Patmos. He's been snatched up into heaven. Here's someone who's fully invested, who's fallen in love with the Lord, who has a burden to see the lost saved and to see a dying world redeemed. And he looks and no one can open the scroll. And here's how he responds. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look at it. John in heaven, having seen the glory of God and the light that radiated from the one seated on the throne, he's been caught up from the rock quarry of of Patmos to the awe and wonder and the glory of heaven, from sinful fallen world to the holiness and perfection of heaven. And John knows what life is like on earth, and now he knows what life is like in heaven, and he begins to weep when he sees that no one is worthy. The word weep there, literally means to sob and wail uncontrollably. John wasn't just sitting there with a tear running down his face. He was broken. This gripped his heart because he understood what this meant. This meant that earth would remain in the hands of the enemy, that the population of the world would remain, again, largely under control of the enemy. Now, John knew he was going to heaven, but he still had a burden for those who were lost. As Christians, we can become callous about the world around us if we're not careful. Amen? We can become so disgusted by the sinful behavior of the lost that we become hardened toward them when we ought to be heartbroken. Amen? You know, I loved the Truth Project. It was fantastic. And one of the many things he talked about is that those who don't know God are literally being held captive by the world. And I just love that point is, here's someone who's been held captive, but praise God that Jesus came to set the captives free. And when we look at a lost and a dying world, instead of being hardened toward them, we need to be heartbroken for them. And we need to look for an opportunity to reach out to them with the love of Christ. Because guess what? That's every single one of us apart from his grace. Amen? I know I say this often, but it's so true. You know, we could use a little more grace in our lives. Is that true? And we could look at the world more through the eyes of our Savior. We could get tainted. I get it. I understand. And you know, and God doesn't like sin, and he's disgusted by sin. But I know this sounds like a flip answer, but it's true. We can hate the sin and love the sinner. That's what the Lord does with us. Aren't you glad? And so we see here that his heart is broken. And if we truly come to the place where we see the world through our Savior's eyes, we'll be a lot less, do a lot less self-righteous leering and a lot more humble weeping. Instead of looking down on people, we'll get down on our knees and intercede for them. So the thought of Satan's continued dominion and the world and its people remaining predominantly lost and in the dark, it broke John's heart and brought him to tears. And I'm convinced that heartbroken tears do a lot more to reach the lost than self-righteous leers. Amen? I believe that if we reach out to people in love and in grace and in mercy, and we don't act like we've got all the answers and they're idiots, but instead we come to them and say, you know what? I'm broken for you. I'm burdened for you. I care about you. I love you. And so does the Lord. And let me tell you what he's done in my life. Amen? 
We all have a testimony, don't we? You don't have to have a a Bible college degree. You don't have to be an advanced theologian to share your faith. All of us can say, here's who I was, then I met Jesus, and now here's who I am. Amen? That's our testimony. John is weeping. John is heartbroken because he is burdened for the lost. And every believer this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. Amen? That ought to be our heart. So worthy is the lamb. Who is worthy to open the scroll of redemption? So far, we've seen in verse three and four, none found worthy. And boy, if the chapter ended here, this would be pretty sad, wouldn't it? But praise God, it doesn't. Look at verse five, because there is one who is worthy. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So one of the elders, remember the elders are the redeemed human beings that were in heaven surrounding the throne. 24 of them, we're not positive who they are. I tend to believe 12, you know, for representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, the Old Testament and the New Testament saints. Ultimately, it is the whole body of believers, both those who are saved, you know, in the Old Testament days, looking forward to the Messiah, and those who have been saved since Jesus died on the cross, born again, new creations in Christ. That's the representation. And one of these elders who's around the throne, who's been worshiping the Lord, who's in his presence, sees John weeping. And he goes to him and he tells him, there's still one. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now I love the word here. He says that he has prevailed to open the scroll. The word prevailed there can also be interpreted conquered or gained the victory. There is one who is victorious over sin, death, and all the powers of darkness. Over Satan, the holder of this fallen world. One who has the power and ability to open the scroll, to take back the title of this world as the kinsman redeemer of all humanity. There is one, and there's only one. Amen? There's only one redeemer, only one savior, only one God, only one king. Only one. But praise God, one's all we need, amen? I had a guy tell me on the plane ride home from India one time. He said, you Christians, you only have one God. We have 30 million. That's what he told me. How can you serve only one God? You got 30 million. And I was trying to be gracious, but at one point we talked, you know, it's a 14-hour flight. You get a lot of talking in, right? But when I point, I said to him, but if you have 30 million dead gods compared to one living God, amen? You know, blocks of wood. We have one living God, and that's all that we need. And there is one who is worthy, and praise God for that. So while Adam and Eve and all of mankind lost the title to earth by choosing to sin, we must never think that we have lost the battle or that Satan has won. The truth is that Satan is a defeated foe, and God is in control. He's in control. Guys, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Devil can't make me do anything. Now, does he tempt us? Does he try to draw us into sin? All day long. Don't you just recognize his tactics sometimes? You just go, is that the enemy or what? You just see it. There it is. Oh, look, it. There, he is. there it is. Be careful. Make sure you don't tell people they're tools of the enemy, even though they might be at the time, right? So just how does this elder describe the one who has conquered He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is an Old Testament prophetic name concerning the coming Messiah, 
who we know, of course, is Jesus Christ. Remember, last week we talked about the emblem that was on the tribe of Judah's, the the banner that they carried as they marched through the wilderness was a lion. And we know that Jesus is is of the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It also says he is of the root of David. Now this is another messianic title fulfilled by Jesus because he is both the root of David and the son of David. How do you do that? How can you be the root? How can it be that David came from you and you came from David? How is that possible? It's not possible unless you're God. Amen? Because Jesus is the creator and so he created David, but he's also a descendant of David. He is the son of David because we know that both Mary and Joseph were related to David, even though it's Mary, again, through whom he was born. It is interesting to note that the blood that runs through your veins is not the blood of your mother, but the blood of your father. And isn't that incredible that Jesus is walking around the earth with the blood of the father? So it's the blood of the father that was spilled on the cross of Calvary that redeemed you and me, shed by the son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Is God good or what? So we see here that he is the root of David and the son of David. So this speaks of his humanity, that he took on human flesh and was a descendant of David, but he also is the one who created David, and he is the one who is our kinsman redeemer, and he is the one who is able to open the scroll. Look at verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, again, those angels who are going around the throne, And in the midst of the elders, those 24 elders seated on lesser thrones, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, a man who deeply loved the Lord, looks toward the throne, looking for the one who would take the scroll out of the Father's hands, and based on the elder's words, he expected to see a lion, right? Who can take it? Oh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looks and he doesn't see a lion, but he sees a lamb. Because Jesus is the lion and the lamb. Amen? He is all-powerful and the king of kings like the lion. But he's also gentle and humble. And he's the lamb. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so he looks in and he sees this lamb. Now the word for lamb there, John uses, is literally, doesn't, doesn't even mean a, a big lamb. It means a little lamb. He looks in and he sees a little lamb. Gives a whole new meaning to Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. <laughs> Amen? Just a thought. I'm not saying the rest of it works, but that first verse, right on the money, right? Mary did have a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow, amen? His name is Jesus Christ. So this lamb, isn't it amazing how God presents himself in such a humble way? You know, when we, when we have, you know, sports teams, we always want a vicious, ferocious animal to represent you know, it's, it's, it's eagles and lions and tigers and bears, right? You don't have the, you know, the San Jose little lambs, right? <laughs> Imagine. Who would go to that game, right? I mean, that, that's what you call the, the three-year-old class at church, right? They're the little lambs. But here's how God presents himself to this world. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David, but he is a lamb, a little lamb. 
that was slain. Why? Because he became the sacrifice and died in our place. And again, this lamb is presented as both powerful and sympathetic because it says there, he stood. This is not a dead lamb. Amen? This is not the carcass of a lamb that had been sacrificed that's just laying there. This is a lamb who is standing because he's alive. How can you be sacrificed and still be alive? You can't unless you're God. Amen? He is the lamb of God. And again, it notice that he is the lamb as if he had, had been slain. You know what that tells us? That he still has the marks of a sacrifice upon his body. So what did John see? Did he see a little lamb? A real little lamb? Or is that the title he gives as he sees Jesus, whom he knows because he walked with him, and yet he still sees him with the marks of the cross? The Bible tells us we know that in heaven, he's still going to have pierced hands, pierced feet, and a pierced side. Right? We know that when he comes back, they're going to look on him whom they have wounded, right? We're going to know. And so it could very well be that he looks in and there he sees Jesus, and that's what I believe, and he sees him with the marks on his body, but he refers to him as a little lamb because he is the lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. What a humbling sight that must have been for John. What a humbling sight that should be for us that here is almighty God willing to come as a little lamb, to be sacrificed for us, to suffer that you and I might have eternal life. The coming judgment begins in chapter 6, next week. And when that judgment comes, it's dictated and ministered to by the Lamb, by Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice that before he administers justice, he had already made a way of escape. Before he pours out his wrath, he reaches out with his mercy. Before he allowed anyone to face righteous judgment, he gave them an opportunity to be saved, to be redeemed, to escape the wrath that is to come by becoming the Lamb of God. So it's the Lamb who was slain, and it's the same Lamb who will then pour out righteous judgment upon those who rebel against him and who reject his offering of salvation. Nobody will go through the tribulation except those who reject Jesus Christ first. No one will go to hell without running over the cross of Calvary to get there. It's rejecting him. And the, you know, God offers salvation freely, but it must be accepted individually. The same lamb who had already offered an escape from judgment by taking the judgment upon himself will be the one who then brings about judgment. So the sacrifice of Jesus, it says there, as though he had been slain. I think it's interesting that even though his crucifixion was many years earlier than this, at least about a hundred probably, but even to this day, this is the scene in heaven. And it's a future event. It hasn't taken place yet. John, you know, this is after the church is raptured that this takes place. So 2,000 years have gone by, but notice that the Lamb of God who has been slain, it's still fresh in heaven, the cross of Calvary. It has not grown stale. It is not something that happened a long time ago. And so when we get to heaven, we're going to see Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain. And it's going to be a reminder for us forever and ever and ever and ever. The greatness of his love and the greatness of his sacrifice that you and I might have eternal life. 
He represents himself, represents himself in heaven as one whose blood is being poured out to redeem sinful man. Now notice it says he has seven horns and seven eyes. Horns in scripture represent power. Eyes in scripture represent knowledge and wisdom. Even though he is a lamb that is slain, he is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And he is omniscient. He's all-knowing. We serve an all-powerful, all-knowing God who willingly laid down his life for us. The only one willing and worthy to redeem sinful man back to intimate fellowship with a holy God is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, a perfect picture of humility, gentleness, but also sacrificial love. And then it says there, And the seven spirits of God sent out into, the, into all the earth. Here we have a reference to the Holy Spirit. Remember that it said there were seven golden lampstands. A lampstand was seven, seven golden lampstands that stood before the throne. And that's a representation of the Holy Spirit. So what have we seen so far here? When Jesus comes forth to bring judgment, he'll bring forth the complete agreement of the other true persons of the Godhead. Because he took the scroll from the hands of the Father, and now he is indwelt with the power of the Spirit. And so when this judgment comes, it's in full agreement of the Trinity. The Father gave him the scroll, and the Holy Spirit is great upon him. The total agreement in the judgment which is about to come upon the earth. Verse 7, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. No created being was found worthy to take the scroll, but Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain, our kinsman redeemer, was worthy to take it. He alone is worthy to redeem us, to righteously judge uh, all of humanity, to be worshiped and to be praised. Guys, don't worship anybody but him. Amen? Don't give praise. It's okay to give words of encouragement, but make sure that all the glory goes to God. All of it. Always. And he took the scroll. He's the only one worthy. The earth's title or ownership papers to reclaim complete and total dominion over the earth to both judge it and to rule and reign over it. And we who have been redeemed will rule and reign with him forever and ever, the Bible tells us. Amen? Worthy is the lamb. Who is worthy? None found worthy. There is one who is worthy. And finally, our response to the one who is worthy. Look at verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Notice when the lamb takes the scroll, the response is immediate. And what is the response? Worship. As soon as he takes the scroll to redeem earth, earth that had dominion had been given over to the enemy, when the Lamb of God, when the one who can redeem us, the one who is worthy takes it, the response is immediate and it's complete. As all of the elders fall on their face, both the high-ranking angels who surround the throne of God and those redeemed believers from earth, beings of great wisdom and intelligence and the angels of deep, that had deep knowledge of truth and these elders who had been redeemed and forgiven, when the Lamb takes the scroll, they fall down on their faces before Him and they join together in worshiping Him. There's a day coming when all of creation will join together in worshiping Him. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Both the redeemed and the lost will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you know that? The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
every knee. Osama bin Laden will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Muhammad will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Everyone, those who have shaken their fists at God, those who have mocked him and rejected him, you know what, though? A lot better to confess now. Amen? A lot better future. A lot better 401k plan when you confess now. Amen? Then it says, each having a harp. This is where we get this. When you wonder why all the cartoons have people floating on clouds playing harps, it comes from this verse right here. Now, we don't really know what this harp, what he saw. John says a harp could be any kind of stringed instrument. But what this tells me is that there's going to be music in heaven. Amen? And that worship in heaven will be accompanied by music. And music doesn't belong to the devil, it belongs to the Lord. There are those today that don't play music in church because they say it's demonic in nature or whatever. If they have guitar, they're not going to play. That's a devil. No, it's not. God created music to worship him. Amen? And so I don't care if you like country. I don't get it. But if you like country music or, or rap or whatever, here's the point. If it glorifies God, then praise God for it. Amen? If, you know, and I praise God that we have all kinds of music to worship him and praise him. And praise the Lord. Now, if we had handed each of you an instrument this morning when you walked in and passed, you know, passed them out and we all played together, that wouldn't be heaven, right? <laughs> so if you've ever wanted to be an accomplished musician, you're going to be when you get to heaven. Amen? Because you know the worship in heaven is not going to be out of tune. Amen? It's not going to sound rank. It's not going to be out of control. So, you know, I tried guitar lessons years ago. I was encouraged when I read this. I thought, well, praise God. There's a day coming when I'm going to be able to play. It's going to be great. We're all going to worship the Lord when we get to heaven with not only our voices, but instruments. And again, how exciting that will be. It's going to be wonderful. That also tells me again, heaven probably not going to be quiet. I don't know where we get this. By the way, have you noticed how colorful heaven is so far too? So why do we go to church and wear somber colors and sing like someone's dying? Right? Oh, praise the Lord. You know, wear black. and uh. Guys, we're celebrating. We're not mourning. Amen? Now you know why I wear all the colorful shirts. I should have worn pink today or something, right, to make the point. But the point is, in heaven, it's red, and it's white, and it's green, and it's beautiful, and gold, and it's all this stuff, and it's going to be loud, and it's going to be wow. So if you're complaining about how loud the music is here, just remember it's going to be a lot louder in heaven. All right. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. These redeemed men symbolically pour out the prayers of the saints before the Lamb. You know, the, again, the tabernacle is a picture of, it's an Old Testament model that's a model of heaven. Remember that one of the furnishings in the tabernacle was the altar of incense, where they burnt incense constantly. It was right next to the holy place, the holy of holies. There was a veil there, and it would go in, you know, it, it, the smoke would go in, bring a sweet-smelling aroma into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, which is, of course, a picture of the presence of Almighty God. And doesn't it blow you away that when we pray, we are bringing a sweet-smelling aroma to our Savior? How awesome is that? How valuable does God see our prayers? He puts them in golden bowls. Precious are the prayers of the saints. That's what the Bible says. 
You know, if we could do anything more, well, there's a lot of things we could do more. And a lot of things we could do less too, amen? But one of the things we could do more is pray. The Bible says you shall make my father's house a house of prayer. Now, one thing I want to make clear, these elders are not interceding on behalf of the saints. They're not placing themselves as mediators between man and God. Remember when he talked about the seven churches, one of the things he hated was the deeds of the Nicolaitans. What did the Nicolaitans do? They put men between God and man, right? Had layers of men. Guys, there is one intercessor between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ. I am your pastor. I am not your priest. Amen? I don't intercede. I can't do, you know what? Go straight to him. I'm here to minister to you, but why would you want to talk to me when you can talk to him? Amen? This is in no way condoning. Well, look, see here, they're pouring out the prayer, so we pray to them and they give them to God. No, that's not what happens. Okay, I just don't want anybody to be mistaken by this. They're not praying for God's people and in no way justifies, again, putting men between God and man. Elders represent God's people. And this event signifies the prayers of God's people being poured out before the Lord. So how precious they are. In golden bowls, And again, there are sweet-smelling incense. Prayer is important in the life of a believer. You know, one of the things I ask, and people think it's redundant, but when I'm talking to somebody, or even in my own life, when I'm struggling, the first thing I do is check my prayer life. How's my prayer life? You're doing marriage counseling. I love to ask, you guys praying together? Oh, no. No. How's your prayer life? Oh, not so much. How's yours? Not so much. Half the time I want to just say, go home and pray and then talk to me in a week, right? I mean, the reality is, it's amazing how when we pray, everything changes. Prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts, amen? And it's precious to God when we pray. Want to see God move? Let's pray. Prayer takes the focus off of ourselves and places it on the Lord. When are we depressed, anxious, worried, and discouraged? When the focus is on whom? Me. Right? I'm bummed out, man. Why? Because I'm looking at me. I'm worried about me. I'm looking at my circumstances. Guys, you know what's great? When you look at heaven, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it's never a bummer. Amen? When you look to heaven, God is always in control. God is always faithful. When we examine our own lives, we can get bummed out. Have you ever noticed how most of us are more apt to pray during times of difficulty than times of plenty? Is that true? And then we wonder why we have so much difficulty. The Lord misses you. Well, you're only going to pray when there's trials. Okay. The Bible says in Psalm 141, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Incense has a pleasing aroma. It ascends into heaven. But you know what? Before incense can rise, there must first be some fire. Amen? And you know what? May we be on fire for God. There's nothing to apologize for being on fire for God. Some people think, dude, you need to dial it down a notch. No, I think we need to stoke it up some, amen? We ought to be on fire, be hot or cold. Let's be hot, amen? Not lukewarm, on fire for God. So before that that aroma goes up, there must first be a fire to ignite that, again, igniting that flame that brings that sweet aroma into the presence of our God. Lord, make us hot for you. Verse 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. First, notice who's singing in this song. It's the elders. These are those who have been redeemed. This is a representation of all the believers. And notice he says there, you're worthy and have redeemed us to God by your blood. That's not angels. Angels are not redeemed. It's us. So this proves yet again, the church is where when this song is being sung? We're in heaven. And as we are in heaven, we are worshiping the Lord. And we are worshiping him because he is worthy. He is so worthy. And notice out of every tribe and tongue and nation, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, he's not the God of America. Amen? He should be the God of America, but he's the God of the whole world. Amen? And people serve him all over the world. And notice he made us kings and priests. These are things that apply to humans and not angels. So they sang a new song, a song that could not be sung by the angels, only those who had been redeemed. And it's only possible to be sung after the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. It was a new song because it was celebrating God's eternal plan. And again, it was a new song because Jesus had been crucified and risen. They couldn't sing it in the Old Testament days. But we could sing it now. What did they sing to the Lamb, our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ? What did they sing? You are worthy. In the days of the Apostle John, the Roman emperors were celebrated upon their arrival with an expression, vere dignas. You know what it means? You are worthy. So when the Roman emperor came in, they shouted, you are worthy. The closest thing I could think of to that would be, hail to the chief. Right, when they start playing that music, bah, 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 you know, the president's coming, right? That's not for the dog catcher. That's for the president, right? I mean, you know that immediately. Well, guess what? You are worthy was for the Roman emperor or those leaders upon the earth. But guess what? They're not worthy. He's worthy. He is the one who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. He is worthy, not the Roman emperor, but the son of God and the redeemer of all mankind. Now, the song honors redemption. In chapter 4, verse 11, the song speaks of his creation, being the creator. Now this speaks of him being the redeemer. Here's what it says of him. It talks about the price of redemption, for you were slain. The worker of redemption, you have redeemed us. The destination of redemption, you have redeemed us to God. The payment of redemption, by your blood. The scope of redemption for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The length of redemption. It has made us kings and priests to our God. And the result of redemption as we shall rule and reign with him upon the earth. If you want to know about redemption, go to Revelation chapter 5. And read that song that has been sung. This new song. The incredible blessings of redemption ought to produce a heart of praise and worship within every single one of us. Amen? And then he says... that he makes us kings and priests. Believers are kings because of their royal birth and their destiny to reign with Jesus. And we are priests because we have no mediator between us and God anymore. So everyone in here, you're a priest. That's what the Bible says. We're kings and priests. We're going to rule and reign with him and we can go directly to him. Finally, the response of all creation. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. If you just multiply the 10,000 times 10,000, that's 100 million. But I don't think that's the point he's making here. It's an innumerable number of angels and believers gathered together worshiping God. Guys, that's going to be awesome. Amen? 
There's a song by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. It's called uh, The Song of the Redeemed or something like that. I forget what it's called. But he talks about what it's going to be like when we're in heaven one day. And I love there's a, a point where it says, Gabriel sounds a trumpet and sh- shouts, welcome home. And then all the redeemed, as far as you can see, just can you imagine what that, it's not going to be quiet. It's not going to be a somber, oh, that's not going to be like that. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be better than the winning touchdown being scored in the last play of the game, amen? We're going to worship at the top of our lungs the one who is worthy to be worshiped and to be praised. I love that in Revelation 4, the angels prompt the elders to worship. Now, the song of the elders prompts the angels to worship. Have you ever noticed how worship is contagious? When you get around, you come to church on a Sunday sometime and you're not happy. You kind of came, someone brought you, I don't know, having a bad week. We've all been that person. I'm not picking on anybody, amen? I'm not supposed to be here. God might be taking attendance today, so I better show up. (laughs) And we come to church and we're just not in a good mood and we're focused on ourselves and we're playing ain't it awful and right. And then all of a sudden the worship goes and people around you are praising God and before you know it, Focus goes off of you as being placed on the Lord and you come back to a place of worship and surrender before God. Worship is contagious. It's a wonderful cycle in heaven as they prompt and encourage each other to more and more and more worship. And that ought to be the pattern here in heaven. And then he says, saying with a quiet and reverent voice. It's not what it says, does it? I know I'm driving that home. I like my music loud. What can I say? He says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Think about how loud it's going to be as they come together. The angels, though not redeemed themselves, have a front row seat to God's work in us. Do you know that? The Bible says we are teaching the angels. That's a little scary, isn't it? What are we teaching them sometimes, right? But the reality is that the angels are watching And God uses us to teach the angels things. They have a front row seat. And the Bible, again, we're a school for them. But what's incredible is they see us with no doubt greater clarity than we see ourselves. And they're blown away by the greatness of our Lord's redeeming work in each one of us. And in response to that, they credit him with power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory to the Lamb. The clearer we see him and all that he has done, the louder we're going to praise him. Verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying. Is that pretty clear? Every creature, right? I was talking to Pastor Bill right before the message. I'm like, so the catfish are going to be praising God. It says everything in the sea, right? What does that mean fully? I don't know, but every creature, every, cre- every part of creation, right? will worship him and praise him. The Bible says if we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out his name. Amen? Because he must be praised. Because he's worthy to be praised. And what will they be saying? Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. In heaven and on the earth and under the earth, every created being will be worshiping. And who will they be worshiping? The one who sits on the throne. Who's that? It's God the Father. And who, who is the Lamb? God the Son. Amen? So God the Father and God the Son. This combined worship of the Father and the Son is a strong testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. Amen? Anybody who says Jesus never claimed to be God has not read the Bible. Or not read it with any understanding. 
because he claims to be God throughout Scripture, and he receives worship. When they try to worship the uh, apostles, what do they do? Dude, get up. Don't do that. Get up. God's watching. Get up. Worship him. But notice that Jesus receives worship. Why? Because he is God. Amen? If, this, if he were not God, this would be idolatry. But he is God. He's the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb of God, the creator of all things, the redeemer of all mankind, and he's worthy to be worshiped and to be praised. Final verse. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. The word worship there means to lay prostrate, prostrate, to lay on the ground. They fell on their faces before God. Now, does it mean we have to fall on our faces to worship? No, but you know what? Not a bad idea sometimes. Amen? To get in a place of complete and total surrender. They fell on their faces. They, got, they fell to their knees first and then to their faces only because if you went straight to your face, you'd get hurt, right? Down to the knees on your way to being on your face so that you're in a place of complete and total surrender. When you are laying on your face, you are defenseless. You're saying to God, I, I hold nothing back. I completely surrender to you. I give my life to you. Take all of it. Well, that's worship, amen? And sadly, we need to be careful because we can be in a place where we're worshiping God and if the song's too fast or too slow or too loud or too quiet, we don't say it. Lord, help us to surrender in worship, amen? Part of that surrender might be singing with your voice that isn't so great. God doesn't care, amen? It's, it's precious to him. It's beautiful to him. It's much more about the attitude of our heart than it is about the words coming out of our mouth. I believe the words coming out of our mouth can be a reflection of what's in our heart. But the Lord really looks at our heart. Amen? And that's the heart. To him who lives forever and ever, kings, Caesars, presidents, and the gods of this world will come and go. But guess what? There's one who lives forever and ever, and he is worthy to be worshipped and to be praised. Amen? So worthy is the lamb. Who is worthy to open the scroll? None was found worthy amongst men or angels or demons or anything created. But one is worthy, not the created, but the creator, Jesus, the lamb of God. And we see our response, the response of the redeemed and the response of all creation as we worship him and surrender our lives completely to him. Guys, if we're having a problem and we don't have much of a prayer life or we don't spend much time worshiping him, it's really a reflection of where we are spiritually. And I'm not saying that to you, but with you. It's just a good, a good gut check. What's my prayer life like? Am I spending time in his presence? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that indeed worthy is the lamb. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who's in control and that you're faithful and sovereign and all-powerful and all-knowing. And Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us. And the day is coming when we'll be around your throne when you will redeem this world. Lord, we will come back and we will rule and reign with you for a thousand years in your millennial kingdom. Lord, we don't deserve any of this, but we're so thankful for it. And Lord, I pray that we would live every day in light of eternity. Lord, give us deeper prayer lives and greater hearts to worship. You're so worthy of all of it. We love you. We praise you. You are a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. let's stand and close the worship song.